right? If you've raised half a million dollars and you're making decisions about $1,000 here, $5,000 there, you are able to throw that money around and basically move faster. And you don't get the decision fatigue or kind of the nitpick fatigue that you get when you are truly bootstrapping. This is Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. For more than 10 years on this show, we've covered topics relating to building and growing startups using an ambitious but a sustainable approach. We're not willing to sacrifice our health or our relationships to grow a company. We want to build real businesses with real customers who pay us real money. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. This week, it's a Rob solo adventure. I'm going to be diving into a couple things that I found on Twitter. It's actually a tweet that I sent out a couple weeks ago, as well as a really interesting thread on enterprise sales from Josh Ledgard of Kickoff Labs and talk about a couple other mental frameworks and things that have been on my mind recently. As I've said before, a lot of these topics that I talk about in these solo adventures 10 years ago would have been a blog post or a chapter of a book. And these days, given everything that I have going on with MicroConf and Tiny Seed in this, this podcast, I don't have as much time to write as I would like. But I'm still exposed to so many new ideas on a weekly basis as I look across 60 companies that I'm invested in. A chunk of those are through Tiny Seed, and a chunk are private angel investments that I made before, before starting Tiny Seed. And I'm seeing a lot of patterns and I'm talking to a lot of founders who are facing things like massive growth or not enough growth or planning for an exit or getting an offer or considering selling and wondering what they might sell for, having to fire an employee, having to break up with a co-founder, having to deal with getting hacked, having to deal with lawsuits. These stories are incredible. And as I walk through these with these founders and, and give them advice and a lot of uh, empathizing, I just realized that there are so many commonalities and so many, so many mental frameworks, I think, that, that can be helpful. So, so that's what a lot of these solo adventures are. I want to start by letting you know that yesterday, Tiny Seed Applications for our fall 2021 batch opened. It's our fourth batch of companies. It's going to start in November, and this should bring us up to about 60 companies funded through Tiny Seed. If you're a bootstrapped SaaS founder who is interested in potentially getting mentorship and advice and guidance and just the right amount of funding, head to tinyseed.com and check it out. My next topic for today is a tweet thread from Josh Ledgard about enterprise sales. It came out in March of this year. He says, here's a thread with lessons learned for SaaS companies looking to sign quote unquote enterprise deals at higher price points for customers. And I will obviously link this thread up in the show notes. This is advice from Josh Ledgard having done enterprise sales uh, with Kickoff Labs, I believe. Point one, get a lawyer to draft you a SaaS agreement. We interviewed a couple firms to find one that had a lot of SaaS experience. Typically, they already have a good boilerplate agreement you can start from. And this is Rob interjecting now. The beauty is 10 years ago to try to get a SaaS agreement, there were handful, if any, lawyers who really had experience with it. So we are at a great time to be running a SaaS company because there are just more people with experience. And whether you're looking for a customer success manager or a salesperson with SaaS experience, there are more every day. And again, 10 years ago, trying to find a SaaS sales expert or you know a SaaS customer success person, that world didn't even exist back then. That, that phrase you know came about maybe five, six years ago. It was really hard. So back to Josh's tweet. Number two, define clear limits and have a way to monitor and enforce them. When something goes wrong because a customer underbought, you should be able to demonstrate, here's what you bought and here's where we enforce the limit. 
Number three, don't list anything on your standard pricing as unlimited. This is advice I often give the founders. Even if you don't call out every limit in bold text, always define limits in your terms of service. You'll find these limits are helpful when customers think they will want to go over them. Number four, default to saying no to legal changes. Every single company that looks at your standard enterprise agreement is going to send back their own agreement or 50 changes. All lawyers want to get paid and prove they add value. And then this is me jumping in. Yes, this is very common. The moment someone says they want to edit your TOS, they want a custom TOS, they want their own, your price skyrockets instantly into the enterprise. So if, if you have a $100 or $200 a month plan and someone says, oh, I need to run my terms of service by legal, that's when you're like, oh, that's our enterprise plan. And that's 25 grand a year. Like it just, that's the minimum. It has to be that because you know that this procurement process is going to be painful. Back to Josh's tweet, 4.1. We found a little bit of pushback saves a lot of money. Most of the time you'll find out, okay, we're good with only this one smaller change. So it is a negotiation. 4.2, charge for changes. We default to a base charge to implement an enterprise agreement on top of the monthly fee. That's, that's what I was referring to. And require a minimum three-month commitment. This is to cover costs of having our team and lawyers review even the small change and any signed agreement. And I would take it further and say annual. You know, that if, if you're going to be enterprise and you're going to go through this painful procurement process, I don't want someone sticking around for three months. Um, they should stick around for a year if they're going to put you through this ringer. So I don't want to read through his entire tweet thread. It goes all the way through, you know, another dozen points or more. Uh, actually, his last point, if you take away one thing from this thread, it should probably be the classic advice from MicroConf of charge more than you think you should. Really nice tweet storm from Josh Ledgard. He is at Josh A. Ledgard on Twitter. And as I said, we will link that up in the show notes. My dad worked construction. He was an electrician for 42 years. He became a project manager and a supervisor and all that. But really at heart, he you know is a, is a person who builds things with his hands. My brother still works in construction as a project manager. And I worked for an electrical contractor my summers and breaks, and then for a couple years out of college, uh, and I was wiring up office buildings. Basically, I was just I was a guy with a tool belt and a drill, and we were we were doing office buildings and sometimes manufacturing facilities that made chips and all kinds of crazy stuff out in the Bay Area. And something that folks would say, I heard it actually a lot from the carpenters. It was a phrase you may have heard it. It's measure twice, cut once. And the idea behind this advice is that once you've cut, you can't go back and uncut. And so before you cut that piece of wood, before you cut that piece of rebar, before you cut that piece of wire molding, you want to be sure that you have the right length. And it's easy to measure twice. But once you've cut it, you've wasted the material in essence. And this is especially important when it's something that's, that's very expensive. What I've realized is that in construction, that advice is good. And it's sensible to be a, a tradesperson who is being deliberate and being thoughtful about what they're doing. What I've realized is that in startups, this advice applies really only to those more permanent decisions that you have to make. Most decisions you make are undoable. They are things you can undo. Making a decision to hire someone, you can fire them. It may suck to undo some of these things, but they are undoable. If you sign an office lease for two or three years, usually it may be a bummer and you may have to pay some money, but usually you can negotiate your way out of it Later, if you decide to move, you can find uh, tenants to sublet it. I've seen all of these things happen to startups. If you build your infrastructure on Heroku, it's a big decision to move away from it, but it's possible to move then to AWS or Google Cloud. Like a lot of this stuff is undoable. And I think that's, again, with pain, a lot of these are undoable. Now, then there are decisions that are mostly set in stone. 
and maybe a life decision, like usually getting a divorce is done. I mean, in, in theory, yes, some divorced people get married again, but it's, it's unlikely. Like once you make that decision and the pain of it, it's going to be very hard to undo that decision. Selling your company, selling your company. In theory, could you buy it back years later? Yeah, that happens one in 10,000 times probably. So selling your company is another. And I would say taking investment is one that is hard to undo. You can always buy out investors later, but these big financial transactions and financial decisions are ones that I think are a lot more difficult to undo. And I think another one is spending money on things that basically don't hold their value. And so in a personal context, that's buying that expensive brand new SUV. In a professional context, that's renting an office and buying a bunch of furniture that you'll never be able to get the money out of. Those are undoable decisions. You can sell the SUV and take a hit. You can sell the furniture and take a big hit, you know, because you'll sell it used. So it's like partially undoable. But those are decisions that I would, I would think long and hard about before doing a big capital expenditure depending on, of course, how much money you have to invest in it, right? If you've raised half a million dollars and you're making decisions about $1,000 here, $5,000 there, you are able to throw that money around and basically move faster. And you don't get the decision fatigue or kind of the nitpick fatigue that you get when you are truly bootstrapped. And I felt this when we were bootstrapped with Drip, then we were acquired by a company that had $38 million in venture capital. And suddenly... I made a lot fewer decisions that involved $100 here, $1,000 here. I remember sitting in a meeting in the first couple months after the acquisition, and I was kind of agonizing to the CEO and the COO about whether we should do something with, I think it was with our AWS hosting, and they asked me, how much does this cost? And why I spent time with Derek talking it through and figuring out some ways around it and workarounds that were going to take a week's worth of engineering time. And you know, it was $1,000 a month. What I realized, you know, as a bootstrapper, we had thought this is important. And they laughed and they said, you're like, you're wasting your time. Just do this because we have the money, you know, just go ahead and spend the money basically instead of uh, spending engineering time because that was the more precious commodity. So in summary, measure twice, cut once, but only in those undoable or more permanent decisions. It's a learned skill in my experience to identify which decisions are undoable. And what you'll find is 80 or 90% of them are, usually at some cost, right? It's either a, like a personal cost where you have to come back and, and negotiate or apologize or, or you know, undo something that may hurt your pride, or there's a financial cost where you, know, you don't lose all the money, but you lose 20 or 30% when you on the resale of it. But I think it's easy to get stuck in basically indecision and to perseverate and, and overanalyze decisions that are not that important and are decisions that you can undo later. And those ones you should make quickly and then fix down the line once you have more information. Someone asked me the other day if I were going to start another SaaS company, what my mental criteria would be around it. I realized there were three requirements that I would absolutely want in any SaaS app that I was going to start today. And now this is, take it for what it's worth because I'm a serial entrepreneur with successes under my belt with, you know, I would, I would be able to raise funding. I mean, there's a lot here. I'm not on step one of the stair-step approach. But there are these things that I think are kind of the SaaS, the holy grails of SaaS. And I don't think they're talked about enough, to be honest. And I started harping on these a couple years ago, but I still don't see people trying to either implement them in their own you know, SaaS apps or to consider, you know, going into markets with these. But number one is the high potential for expansion revenue. 
And that is where, for example, with an email service provider, if I'm charging based on the number of subscribers you have, people who are successful are going to get more subscribers over time. It's just what happens. Your list just grows if you're successful. And you charge per subscriber or per thousand subscribers or whatever. That means that in any given month, even if you add zero customers, your revenue will go up, your MRR will go up. And this leads to this unbelievable holy grail called net negative churn. And that is where you can literally add zero customers in a month and your MRR goes up. And so as you add customers, instead of, you know, we always think of it as like, oh, I have 3% churn, I have 8% churn. Drip had, when we sold it, Drip had net negative churn more months than it didn't. And, you know, if it was minus one, minus two, minus 3%, these are the businesses like the sales forces out there, like the MailChimps, maybe the base camps, you know, they don't talk about their financials, but those businesses mint money. They mint money because they grow when you do nothing. Therefore, when you do something, they grow even faster. And in terms of Salesforce, you know, I talked about ESP having subscribers, Salesforce is seats. And over time, successful companies hire more salespeople, they hire more employees, and so they need to buy more seats. And so, you know, again, I would only enter a market where there's expansion revenue possibilities, which could then lead to net negative churn, because to me, that is the number one. And that, there's a reason it's first when I'm talking about these three things, because that is the most important. Second one is I would want some element of virality. And I don't mean in the old school, like refer a friend or viral, like one of those old Facebook games that invites your friends or whatever. I'm thinking more about some type of link that is shared. So think about SavvyCal, which is a Calendly competitor, where the more people who use SavvyCal, the more people are sending out links to other people. And they start to think, oh, this, this is interesting. I wonder how this is different than you know, what I'm using today. DocSketch, which is now SignWell, signwell.com is e-signature. Every time we at TinySeed or MicroConf send out a document for signature, that person sees signwell.com and there's a viral loop there. Even if you were starting, I'll come back to the ESP because I have so much experience there. You know, if I had a free plan with my ESP, certainly my company name and link would be in the footer of those emails. And even without a free plan, if you have a, any type of, of interface, like a pop-up that appears on your customer's websites, an email capture widget or what have you, I would want that powered by my company link in there. And we definitely saw people click through. Uh, we had a powered by drip link, you know, back in the day. And we saw people click through and become customers. And then the third component that I would want in a space is I would want to go into a big space with slow moving incumbents so that I can get customers to switch versus educate. And that's not to say that you shouldn't consider going into, you know, a smaller niche without big slow moving incumbents. You know, if you look across, you can go to tinyseed.com and scroll down and see all 41, 42 companies that we funded. And you click through and there's construction management software for home improvement contractors. And there's three apps in the security niche. And there's one that offers financial data to MSPs, which are managed service providers. And there's a news API and there's affiliate software. And a lot of these are niche. And so I'm not saying don't go niche, never go niche. But I'm saying myself, these days, if I was going to go, I, was, I would go after a big opportunity and I would want it in a space with slow moving slash hated, despised competitors, you know, where I see people complaining on message boards or on Twitter, and I can see an angle to, you know, doing a better job than them. And that, you know, and to go back to our earlier examples, I mean, that was one of the big successes. That was one of the reasons that Drip was successful is we had that in the ESP and in the marketing automation space. And that's something that, that SavvyCal has, that's something that, that SignWell has, given how long SaaS has been around at this point, 
it's not something that's that's impossible to find. And finally, it's relatively frequent that I have conversations with a founder who is considering selling, who has been approached either by a competitor or a strategic acquirer, sometimes private equity, about a potential acquisition. And I mean, it's probably once a week, you know, again, across my investments, but also just people reaching out because I have advertised on this podcast that I'm willing to have it. I mean, that talk about an undoable decision. And so I said, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to do consulting. I can't advise founders open-ended, but I can absolutely have a conversation for founders who are at a critical, critical point where hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars are on the line. And it's important to me that, you know, founders have, I guess, someone to, to bounce that, that off of. So I have a lot of conversations around this. And eventually I put together a bulleted list. I think it was, this was in an email or maybe it was a Slack thread um, in the Tiny Seed Slack. And this is just a couple things to keep in mind when a competitor or strategic or private equity approaches you about an acquisition. So the first is, this is way more common than people think. Across our first two batches of Tiny Seed, I believe, I think it's north of one third of the companies have been approached about an acquisition over what was over like the first 18 months of the accelerator. It's common that people start this conversation. Most don't go through. And that's my second point. Remember that the most likely outcome is that no deal happens for one reason or another. Often it's valuation. Someone wants a really good deal. They want to buy you for one times ARR. They want to do an aqua hire where, hey, here's half a million dollars in company stock that vests over this many years for you to shut your company down and come work for us. Point three in my usual advice to people is have the conversation, but work really hard to avoid being distracted by it. That's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to sink a bunch of time or a bunch of mental headspace into a deal that, again, is unlikely to happen. For every 10 or 20 conversations that start, maybe one deal closes. You know, it's just not likely to happen. The second most likely outcome is that someone's trying to acquire you. You know, as I said before, they offer you a few hundred grand to come be an employee. Most of the offers that I see, I'd say the majority, it's not 90%, but, you know, 50, 60%, that's really what big companies are trying to do. And so know up front whether that's interesting to you. My guess is it's probably not, but I suppose it depends on your situation. And then my last piece of advice, of course, this is not, I'm not a lawyer, this is not legal advice, but I would always sign an NDA before disclosing financials, All right? Before I started tossing out my MRR, my customer count or anything else. And you also need to be aware that they may be asking you for information that they will use to compete against you later. I mean, that's a risk you take with a conversation like this. And you have to weigh that. Even an NDA is just a, a contract, right? It's not... It doesn't stop someone from being a jerk. It doesn't stop someone from lying. You know, you would have to prove and enforce that they took what you said and use that against you, and you would probably have to do it in court. And so an NDA is, it, it is really just a piece of paper. It's a backstop, but I, I don't know. There still needs to be a level of care that you need to consider. When we were considering selling Drip, we were getting inbound interest. I think we had five inbound over the course of about 18 months. Every time I had to evaluate how much do I tell them and will will they use this, even though we signed NDAs, will they use this, you know, to someday compete against me? And I had to just say, well, I guess anything I, you know, anything I tell them, I need to be able to out-compete them. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining me again. As a reminder, Tiny Seed applications for our fall 2021 batch have opened. Head to tinyseed.com if you're interested. And if you haven't left this podcast a five-star review, I would really appreciate it. That's a wrap for this week, and I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.